All right, here we are in Life of Peter. Um, you know, we're choosing snippets in his life. We can't do everything. Um, a lot's going on. And tonight we're meeting him um, at the Last Supper. This is Jesus' last meal with the apostles. He'll be arrested later on this evening. Jesus knows this. Uh, within 24 hours, he will be hanging on the cross. Um, the whole kind of message and flow of the story of Peter has been one of somebody in process. That's what I wanted us to see is that he apprehends who Jesus is but doesn't comprehend, if you know the difference between those two words. He understands much, but he doesn't have full comprehension, and that's our life. Uh, growing in understanding but, not, but to completely comprehend who God is in his work. Um, a full lifetime of devotion to that, you could never fully comprehend him. We won't fully comprehend him even in glory. But Peter's kind of always grasping, and, he, and he's holding on to Jesus, and it's dawning on him more and more who Jesus is and what he's doing. Um, but like Peter, I don't know who that is, um, our understanding is still inadequate. Uh, it, it, it's still in part and not full. And um, we're in process. And the gospel is making more sense to us, and it's making more sense to Peter. So here he is. Um, in John 13, uh, the first 17 verses. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed. This is within 24 hours he will be hanging on the cross dying. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to him, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray to you teach us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture of Jesus now. And I pray that we would enter into the awkwardness of it and the beauty of it. That your Holy Spirit would testify to our hearts. Be with us, dear God, and teach us. Let us be humbled and confused uh, and rested and, and driven by Jesus' love for us in this passage. Teach us, dear Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, by way of introduction... There's this one activity that is maybe one of my favorite things I do that a lot of y'all are familiar with. I think I excel at it. I think I'm pretty gifted at it. Um, 
the world comes alive when I engage in it. It just, everything feels right in the world. Um, and that, that, that activity, that thing that I love where everything is perfect in the world is pulling people in the inner tube behind a ski boat. <laughs> and, yeah, Josh, you thought you had me. Um, I could see all the knowing nods and the dismissal and everything. Uh, I love it. There, my, some of y'all might reach this, age, reach this age, but there's some point where you actually realize pulling the tube is more fun than riding in the tube. I don't know when that threshold is. Um, but I reached it sometime in, in my 20s when I started. Actually, it was when I was an RF intern at the University of Tennessee, and I took students down to the lake house, uh, to a lake house down in Alabama, and I realized, like, in my mind, 18-year-old guys are indestructible, so you can just, like, test the limits. You can do whatever. Um, you know, I, I've, I've bloodied several college-age guys on an inner tube before. Um, one guy got so disoriented on the tube that when he fell off, he didn't know which way up was because he had lost his, like, his sense of balance and everything, and he started swimming down, and we were driving toward him, and all we could see is his feet out of the water. Um, so I'll... I like to think maybe it's my spiritual gift. Maybe it's how God's gifted me. It's my blessing to the world. I don't have a lot of opportunities here, but, um, you know, if you got a ski boat in a tube, I'd love to pull you. Um, earlier this summer, though, we, we were back in Alabama, and we had the chance to do that, and I have an 8-year-old nephew. And, uh, and he wanted, you know, I'm the cool, out-of-control uncle. Uh, being an uncle is awesome. And he wanted Uncle Britton to pull him on the tube. And I was like, all right, Halsey, well, let me tell you. I'd love to pull you on the tube. But I only do it one way. And you're eight years old, and I'm not backing off. And uh, <laughs> I was real blunt with him. I was like, the waves are going to be huge, it's going to be fast, and it's going to be scary. And he laughed. He's like, ha, 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 Uncle Britton, you're so funny. Don't make it too big. Don't make the waves too big. Don't go too fast. And I said, little Halsey. <laughs> I'm going to go fast and the waves are going to be huge. That's how I roll. That's how this is going to go down. And he laughed and he, and, and he kept saying like, he, he thought I was joking with him. Um, and he was like, that's funny, Uncle Britton. You can do some bumps, but don't go too fast and don't make the bumps too big. And I said, little Halsey, I'm going to pull you on the tube if you want me to, but I'm only pulling you this way. The waves are going to be huge and we're going to go really, really fast. And so he... I couldn't be any more clear. I didn't know how to be any more clear than that. Um, you know, my my job is a communicator, so kind of thought I had done that. So I pulled him, and it was like a nightmare, and he didn't last very long. And he got off, and he was terrified. Y'all are all thinking I'm a terrible uncle. Okay. <laughs> he still thinks I'm awesome, but maybe not as awesome. And he... <laughs> He got off the tube, and he was like, Uncle Britton, the waves were huge, and you went so fast. And I was like, Will Halsey, what did I tell you we were going to do? We were going to have huge waves, and we are going to go really fast. And I say that because Jesus is speaking in stark terms right here, um, and in hard terms, and we are nodding our heads with this kind of warm fuzzy of like, oh, yeah, washing people's feet. That's so sweet. I'm in on this Jesus thing. Um, I'm down with that. Get saved. Serve other people. I love that. And what I want us to see is we don't understand what Jesus is talking about. That we're sitting there saying like, oh, yeah, Jesus, like small waves. Don't go too fast. This will be fun. He's saying, no, no, no. What you're entering into with me, the waves are going to be huge and it's going to be terrifying. 
he's trying to be really, really clear about, first of all, what he does for us, but secondly, what he calls us into. And the reality is, if we understood it, we would be a little bit afraid of it. And that really is an okay response. And, and maybe the right way, if I preach this well, maybe the place we need to be emotionally at the end of this is a little bit afraid of what it means to be a Christian. That really is the right place. And I'll talk about this later. Jesus was afraid of doing what God wanted him to do. He didn't want to. Later on this evening, he'll pray to God and he'll say, I don't want to do this. Jesus is afraid of this. So if we're not afraid of it, we're not, we have no idea what he's talking about. We still hear what we want to hear, which is what little Halsey wanted to hear, which is it's going to be a little bumpy and it's going to be a little fast, but it's not going to be terrifying and the waves aren't going to be huge. He's saying, no, no, no. It's going to be terrifying. He's saying to Peter and he's saying to the apostles and he's saying to us, in a sense, he's saying, you don't hear what I'm doing for you and you're not hearing what I'm calling you to. And those are the two things that are depicted in this kind of famous episode of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. First of all, he's teaching them about what he does for them. And then he's teaching them what they then are to do. So it's Jesus' work and our response. Those are the two points in the sermon. What Jesus is doing and then what our response is, what we're called into. So what Jesus has been doing all throughout his ministry up to this point, what he's been doing with the apostles is he's been peeling back the curtain on his deity. In some ways, one of his main tasks is to convince the world and to convince his followers, I am God incarnate. I am Emmanuel, God with us, walking this world. And he knows that unveiled deity is too overwhelming for us. There are different times in the Bible where people get a large glimpse of God's glory, and it's overwhelming. They say things like, I want to die. And so Jesus has been peeling back the curtain, just letting his disciples, letting people around him peek a little bit into his divine glory. Through the healings, through the exorcisms, through the feedings, all these miracles, he's just pulling back the curtain a little bit, because he knows we can't have much of a glimpse at his glory and not be overwhelmed. And he's just kind of giving them small doses of like, do you see that I am the God of creation? Do you see I'm Lord over nature? Do you see I'm Lord over the spiritual world? Do you see that I am Lord? I'm going to give you small glimpses because you can't handle the big glimpses. And so he's been establishing this huge idea, right? And we're... We meet Jesus on the night before the biggest work, the kind of all-consuming work of everything he's leading towards, which is this moment on the cross that's going to happen the next day. And he does something that basically goes against everything that he's done up to this point. Everything he's done up to this point is he's trying to establish his divine glory, his deity, his divinity. Right? And then on his last night, it feels like he goes in the exact opposite direction. Instead of becoming something great... He becomes something servile, right? It's not appropriate. It's very inappropriate in this passage, what he does. Uh, It's not logical. And what he's doing is, what he's in this narrative, the whole story of the Gospels, is he's saying, do you see that I am God? Do you see that I am God? That I am God among his creation. And then in this passage, he's saying, now let me show you what kind of God I am. Let me show you how I use my power, my glory, my authority, my significance. How I intend to save the world, to bring salvation. And we've got to get, this is the hard thing, we've got to get that it doesn't make sense. And that we don't like it. 
in some regard. And it pushes back against actually a lot of the main reasons we came to Stanford, me included. It's counterintuitive the way Jesus is saying he's going to bring change in the world. When we think about how do you change the world, none of us thinks the way Jesus acts in this passage. God's plan to save the world is to voluntarily give up power, give up glory, give up reputation and significance. The way he intends to change the world is by becoming nothing and giving up everything he has. What he does in this passage is confusing, it's unnerving. The apostles feel like it is so inappropriate. They feel this is actually the most awkward moment in Scripture. It really is awkward. This was a task that was given to slaves, and actually Jews wouldn't even have Jewish slaves wash their feet. They would have Gentile slaves because it was seen as so low. And again, this is not ordinary foot washing. These were not, you know, pedicured soft feet like sliding out of their Ugg boots, you know? Like that's not what we're dealing with right here. Um, These people walked in sandals in streets and in towns and on roadways that had no sanitation. There's no sanitation. So all the implications that I'm not going to talk about that you can imagine all hold true. Jesus is literally washing animal feces and urine off of their feet. That's what's happening. He's getting on his hands. He's on his knees at their feet, cleaning it. It's awkward. And it's inappropriate. And Peter doesn't get it and we don't get it. And I'll pause for a moment to... You know, the power and the authority of God incarnate of of this notion of a deity, I think sometimes can be unpopular. It's hard to imagine a way of loving or thinking that God is good if He is this all-powerful God because we've become suspect of authority structures. Um, Maybe it's through personal experience. Maybe it's through cultural experience. Maybe you've had people of authority uh, abuse that authority in your life in different capacities. Uh, Maybe it's through cultural institutions. Like, you watch the debates... Like, how can you not distrust authority now, right, after watching all the debates? I'm not for any candidate, just by the way, that's my political position. It's really hard to trust authority. It's really hard to think about trusting to the goodness of God because we look like, all right, if he's all-powerful and he is all authority, I'm suspect. Maybe you're suspect for personal reasons, maybe for cultural reasons, whatever. What we have to see in this passage a little bit is see what he does with his power and his authority. Um, because what he does is he serves humbly. That's how he chooses to use his power. God saves the world not through force, not through might, not through influence, not through political power, not through significance, but rather precisely through giving all of those things up. What he did to change the world is wash the feet of 12 first century peasants that were nobodies. That's what he did. God, who had all power at his fingertips, said, here's how I'm going to change the world. I'm going to wash the feet of 12 unimportant peasants in the first century. None of us would concoct a plan to change the world through doing that. It doesn't make any sense. Earlier, because what we think is that the hope of the world and my hope, right, and your hope is if we can become a person of significance that can do something powerful to help the world. That's what we want to become. We want to become significant for our sake and for the world's sake. Become influential, right? Earlier in Mark 10, James and John actually have this similar instinct. This is before this passage occurs, um, Mark 10. They ask Jesus. They get, okay, 
again, they're kind of slowly getting who Jesus is, and they're like, can we, Jesus, can we sit at the places of honor to your left and to your right? They want to get close to power because they're starting to get that Jesus is power and Jesus is glory and Jesus is influence. They want to get near. We want to get near. You know, this is why all of us, me included, are at Stanford. It's because this place feels like the center of the world. And it feels like there are powerful people here. And it feels like you give yourself every advantage by being in this place and in this community. Me included, as a gospel minister, when they asked me to consider RF Stanford, I thought, dude, that is a place of influence. I want to get near it. That's why y'all are here, because this is a place of influence you wanted to get near it. You could have gone to a lot of other places. I'm not saying that's all wrong, but what we are going to say is ultimately getting near a place of influence doesn't necessarily change the world. Becoming a person of influence doesn't change the world. Jesus is saying, right here, when he, when he, actually when he addresses James and John, when they say, we want to sit right next to you because you're the center of the world, because you're the place of influence... They're right that he's the center of the world, but they're wrong in that they have no idea what that actually means to be next to Jesus. He's saying, if you actually understand, he actually tells James John, if you actually knew what I was about to do, you wouldn't ask for those seats. You wouldn't want to be near me. He is the center of power and influence and glory and authority in the world and significance, but the way he wields it, we wouldn't want to be in on. Because we think that our salvation and the world's salvation is going to come if we come to Stanford, if we're wildly successful in our endeavors, we make a name for ourselves, we do something significant and become a person with a powerful network. And we want to become a person of world-changing significance. And we want it for the world, but we also want it for us. We're not altruistic in this, right? We want it for the world, but also I want to make a difference so that I can know that I made a difference, right? We're in this for us. Even our good deeds, we're in it. For us, the reason I know this is because at Stanford, everybody talks about their big game all the time. Everybody's advertising and boasting about their, the way they're going to change the world and the impact they plan and dream on having. This is a place where everybody advertises their own salvation plans because we want to be heroes and we want everybody to know. So there's a lot of selfishness involved in our desire to become a person of influence and power and glory. And we think the world's going to be changed. We think I'm going to be changed. You think you're going to be changed if good people like us become people of significance. Jesus is doing the exact opposite. This is how He changes the world. He gives up His dreams of influence and significance and power, and He enters into our dirt. This is the way Paul describes it in Philippians 2. He was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God changes the world by doing the exact opposite of what all our instincts tell us. He does it by giving up power, by giving up influence and significance and comfort. And, and actually what we'll see next week, he does it for people who don't even appreciate him. He does it for people who in the next 24 hours will actually abandon him. So he does it for them. Now what is it that he do, does? Why? It's not simply the act of giving up power, but why does he do it? He doesn't just give it up to give it up. He does something specific. And this is what he does. He gets dirty so we can be clean. 
He's washing their feet. Peter's objecting because it feels totally awkward. And he tells Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And he's making a, a very simple point that points forward to his work on the cross. Again, this is a sign. You don't stop at the sign. You see where the sign is pointing you. And Jesus even says, you're going to understand this in a little while. You're going to understand. And he's teaching us a very simple point, And it's this. You have to be clean to be near God. You have to be clean to be near God. The Old Testament code has all this cleanliness law. And it's there for the purpose of communicating to God's people that we're dirty because of the sin and selfishness in our lives and you have to be clean to be near God. And that's not a foreign concept because the reality is in this world, what do you do with your clothes when you know you're going to be around someone of power and significance? You put on the right types of clothes. I got to see then President Bush speak at a commencement at Furman University. You know what I did? I dressed up that day just like everybody else. You're going to dress up for job interviews when you interview with powerful people. You're going to put on the right clothes for the person that you're going to be in the presence of. Now, what if that person is higher and holier and perfect and more pure than any human being, so high and holy we can't even comprehend it? We know what that means? You have to have to be flawless that only perfect purity is appropriate in His presence. Absolute purity in His presence. And here's the problem. You can't clean yourself. All the world-changing plans, all the religious devotion, all the religious commitment, all the tolerance, all the niceness, our grades, whatever it is, it's just not enough to get us clean enough. And we know that. And what we're like is, we're like, uh, the campus minister at Mississippi State was telling me a story about his 18-month-old trying to change her own diaper. And you know what happens when an 18-month-old tries to change her own diaper? They can't get themselves clean because they're dirty. So they get their hands dirty. You know what happens as they try to clean themselves? They just smear the dirt everywhere. We're using the word dirt to kind of keep this PG. <laughs> When they tried to clean themselves, they made a mess. That's us. Our hands are dirty. Our hearts are dirty. Every ounce of cleaning we try to do is even the good stuff we do. You know, Jesus actually has to die for our good stuff because even the good things we do is filled with vanity and self-righteousness and arrogance. It's done out of unbelief because we're doing it try to prove ourselves to God because we don't believe He's actually died for us and that we're pure. So we actually do it in unbelief and faithlessness. Jesus actually has to die for our good works. Because even our best attempts at cleaning ourselves up, all we're doing is smearing the dirt all over ourselves. Because there's one simple principle about cleanliness that we ignore as we try to clean ourselves. And it's this. The only way that something dirty can get clean is if something clean gets dirty. The only way that something dirty can get clean is if something that is clean gets dirty. Jesus kept the law. He was full of love, mercy, and compassion. He was wholly devoted to God in all of His heart. He was clean. And that's why He's the only one sufficient to clean us. He's clean, and He wipes away our dirt. And like any clean rag, the way it makes you clean is by the rag becoming dirty. This is Jesus in graphic in symbolic terms, 
taking the dirt off of the feet of his disciples in order to teach them about what he's about to do at the cross. He takes on our filth so we can be clean. This is what it means. This is good news. If you're in Christ, if you've trusted him, you're clean. You're clean. Nothing adds to your cleanliness. All your attempts to make yourself more clean. Jesus is actually saying, actually, I died for that too. Actually, I died for that too. You're clean now. You can re- That's such good news, we're actually afraid to rest in it. You are made right. Your guilt and your sin have been washed away. Only Jesus could take it away. None of your religious devotion could have ever taken it away. It's hard to believe because it's too good. All the addictions we carry, all the selfishness and the bitterness and the anger, the things that make us feel dirty, the things that make us, the disconnectedness, the disregard for God, the jealousy and the rivalry, the conceit, the stench of our lives, Jesus has washed away. And and the reality is, we're so used to it that we still think it's stuck on us. We keep finding it hard to believe. You're perfect and you're pure. You're never more prepared for God's presence than you are right now. If you're in Jesus, if you've allowed Him to clean you. Nothing you will do in this life will make you more clean for His presence. Why does God use His power and authority and His significance and His influence in such a counterintuitive way? By laying it aside and taking on our dirt. By becoming a servant who washes the filth of His people. Because at the end of the day, that's the only hope we have. Because starting a nonprofit, voting for the right guy, Christians having political influence, being a good person, being intelligent, acquiring an influential network of powerful people, religious devotion... None of it is going to make us clean, and none of it's going to fix the world. Honestly, I think one of the main reasons the American church probably is losing influence in this culture is because Christians have bought in the idea that if we have influence and if we elect the right people, that's how the world's going to change. That's actually worldly thinking. That's not what Jesus is doing right here. That's in complete contradiction to what he's doing right here. And the church keeps thinking, like, we've got to have the right people. In office, we've got to have more power. We've got to dominate politics. Jesus is actually saying, like, I actually have all of that. Here's someone to change the world. I'm going to let go of it all and wash unimportant people. He set aside the very things that we want to go and wash dirty, needy, unimportant people. And that's how he changes the world. That's what Jesus does for us. Second point then is, what then are we called into? Because he's actually not just... He's just teaching us what he does for the cross. And then he says, and this is what you're called to. I'm also setting an example for you. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. text gets harder. He's asking us to jump in on this with him. Doing the same thing. Laying aside our need to be powerful and influential, to have glory, to have weight, to have powerful friends. And this is, this is what following Jesus looks like. And this is where we should start to get afraid. If we're starting to hear Jesus, like if we're not little Halsey on this moment, and start to hear like he's saying the waves are going to be huge, and it's going to be terrifying. Jesus is saying, following me means dying to your dream life in order to enter into the nightmares of others. That's what my people do. This is not comfortable. It wasn't comfortable for Jesus. He didn't like it. He wanted to get out of it. If Jesus wanted to get out of it, we're going to want to get out of it. He is saying, 
Following me, following me means dying to your dream life so that you can get into the nightmares of others because there's nothing that destroys our dreams more than living in other people's nightmares. It is the most inconvenient thing you will ever do because nightmares don't happen and aren't discussed over one coffee or one late night conversation. Nightmares last a while. In fact, they last a whole life. And to enter into other people's nightmares, it's messy, it's hard, it's time-consuming. You know what it does? It totally wrecks your schedule. It will mess up some of your other responsibilities. It might affect your grades. We have this idea that following Jesus is being a good person, and we're kind of like little Halsey. If we're not careful, we'll be like little Halsey of saying like, okay, I hear you saying the waves are big and it's going to be scary, but they're going to be small and manageable, right? And you're going to go slow. He's saying no. They're going to be huge. It's going to be terrifying. And so we're prone to have this romantic notion about following Jesus. I think any time we have a romantic notion about following Jesus, that we should be suspect of that. That's going to be awesome. I'm going to start something. I'm going to volunteer. I'm leadership material because I'm at Stanford, and people at Stanford have influence, and they do big things. And I'm going to think big, and I'm going to establish this kind of life of comfort and simplicity and leadership, and have some accomplishment and some influence, and I'm going to do some good things for the world and for the kingdom. That's my dream. I know it's y'all's dream. And Jesus is saying, if you are in me, and if you are following me, and if you understand what I've done for you, and if you understand how painful it was for me, that it was scary. Jesus, it was scary for me, but it's done in love. If you get what I've done for you, following me is doing what I did. Giving up your dream life and entering into other people's nightmares. Because what we want, this is what we're all dying for, is a comfortable, self-congratulating life. Right? And going into the nightmares of others and going into the difficulties of other people's lives, serving carrying burdens, bearing with, and not just over one cup of coffee and not just for one quarter, but until it's over. It'll wreck your life. It really will. And Stanford is it's a big place with big vision for big changes, for powerful and influential movements to begin. And Jesus is advocating the opposite. Somebody reminded me of a quote the other day where C.S. Lewis said, Loving everybody is the best excuse for loving no one in particular. For the gospel to go out, for, for Stanford to be touched by Jesus' love, we need to stop dreaming about changing the world. Christians need to stop dreaming about changing the world. For Stanford to hear the good news that there is a God full of grace and favor and compassion and forgiveness who longs for death and suffering to die and to be eradicated, for that to happen at Stanford, Christians need to stop dreaming about changing the world. And we need to start listening to our roommates. We need to start spending time with our hallmates and with our friends and with our teammates and walking daily alongside of people in life into the nightmares of the lives of the people around us. And y'all, we all are, we're all in nightmares too. In nightmares, the waves are huge and it's terrifying. You've got to see that this is the last thing that we want to do. But God in His wisdom understands that's precisely what the world needs. The way we want to move is we want to grow 
We're going to have this big picture about this exciting way of doing things for Jesus on campus. This is the way a Christian, a Christian enters into Christian service the way, same way Jesus enters into Christian service, which you can see in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is, I'm scared because this might wreck my life, but I'm going to trust that Jesus is sufficient and the Lord will hold on to me and that one day I'll be with people in the resurrection. But I'm scared. That's how a Christian enters into, into Jesus-centered, Jesus-following ministry. The way worldly thinking is, is I'm going to change the world by having a big influence and it's going to be grand and huge. I'm not saying some of that stuff won't happen. That's fine. Jesus was terrified to do what he did. If we're following in his footsteps, it will feel terrifying. It will be nerve-wracking. We will feel unprepared, insufficient, And that's exactly where he does his most beautiful work because when you're unprepared and insufficient and you know there's nothing in you that can really affect much change and all you can do is walk and be available, that's where God works. He uses weakness. Because when he uses weak people, you know what happens? People only see Jesus. When we have nothing, then we offer people nothing in ourselves and we say, I'm nothing. I've got nothing for you. You're in the middle of this nightmare. All I can hand you is the hope I have in Jesus. All of a sudden, you're no longer trying to give yourselves to people or the model of how you run your life. You're just saying, here's the Savior I trust on. Because I don't even have my own life together. You're actually beginning to understand the life Jesus called you into if you don't want to do it. That's how you know you're beginning to understand Jesus. If you're starting to think, I don't want to do that. That's a good thing. That means you're getting it if you're thinking, I don't want in on that. This campus does not need movements. It needs friends. Movements are easy. Anybody can start them, obviously. Like, all of y'all start a thousand of them. Like, every quarter, there's like a new movement for something. Walking through the nightmares of a friend daily, over the course of a quarter, over the course of a year, over the course of four years, over the course of a lifetime, that's hard. Movements are easy. Walking with people in nightmares is hard, and you'll receive very little praise for it. You'll get a lot of praise for movements. I'm not saying movements are altogether bad. I'm just saying movements are not very effective. You'll get praise for a movement. You won't get much praise for walking in people's nightmares. There's nothing more opposed to our dream life than living in other people's nightmares. That's what cross-shaped servant leadership is, is death. It's death to safety, it's death to power, it's death to recognition, it's death to influence, it's death to our own dreams. And the reason why we do it is we're not doing it for recognition, not for justification, not even to feel a sense of reward, not even for praise. But here's the beautiful thing. What if you could do it because you just forgot to care about yourself for a moment and you simply began to hate seeing people in pain? What if we did that not because we were looking for reward or sense that we're a good person, but we actually forgot about ourselves for a moment and just saw people in pain and hated that pain for them? Whether the pain is inflicted by other people or it's self-inflicted, whether it's social or mental or moral or spiritual pain, Jesus went to serve and save in all of those areas of pain. Servant leadership is being willing to do the menial task of loving people through their dark stories without needing recognition and praise in return. So what is it that's beneath you? What's unattractive service? What are the kindnesses that you don't have time for? 
What favors don't fit into your schedule? What are the conversations and friends that you need to avoid in order to accomplish your goals? What are the people that are going to cost you socially if you invest in friendship with them? Because servant leadership is doing what Jesus did. It's befriending and serving the unimportant and the unimpressive and the needy people with genuine, lasting love and care. And when you get afraid, that means you're starting to do it. Because Jesus was afraid. Servant leadership is dying to our agenda for the manageable and self-congratulating life. It's dying to our dreams. And what we want, and this is what I want, everybody in this room wants, we want a line or a place where Jesus is going to say, servant leadership is hard. It's hard. And I want you to give some things up. But there's going to be, a, there are going to be some essential things that maybe... Jesus can, is going to say, like, but I'm not going to ask you to give that up. We want that line. We want Jesus to say, but I'm not going to ask this of you. He might. Following Him has cost people their lives, their security, their health, their wealth, their spouses, their children, their reputation, their job, their GPA, their resume. When you look at the lives of Christians in Scripture and in this world today, it doesn't seem like anything's off limits. I don't know what He's going to ask us to give up. I don't know what it's going to cost you to follow Him and to serve in people's nightmares. It seems like anything. It seems like it could cost anything. And He doesn't promise. Here's what He doesn't promise. We don't soft-pedal Christianity in our UF. He doesn't promise security or popularity or romance. He doesn't promise pain-free or even pain-light existence. He promises this, that He washes you. He promises that you will be with Him, and He promises that His grace will be sufficient for you. If you're a little bit scared, you've finally heard Jesus on this. And the question, kind of the closing question is, how do we get there? Because if we're starting to hear Him, then fear is creeping in, isn't it? I don't want to do this. And the only way to start doing things that we're deeply fearful of, John actually explains later in one of his letters, he says this, the way fear is taken out of our lives that we can go and do the things we're afraid of is through perfect love. Not our perfect love towards God, but John, 1 John 4, 8 says, His perfect love casts out our fear. We think fear dies, actually, if we get our lives properly managed. That's what we all think. Fear will die when I get my life properly managed and organized. And He's calling us to give up our properly managed life. And what we're feeling is fear. Because how else am I going to raise fear if I don't have control over my schedule, over my school, over my friendships, over the areas that I am trying to serve in? That sounds terrifying. That's how I was going to get rid of fears by managing everything. And all of a sudden, he's saying, like, stop trying to manage your life. Go love people that are unmanageable. Perfect love casts out fear, not managing your life. Managing your life does not cast out fear. It actually invokes more and more fear. His perfect love, being perfectly loved by another, his cleansing work, that's why before he calls us into the life of servanthood, he becomes our servant to demonstrate His love for us to cleanse us, to enter into our nightmares, walk us through it and heal us so that we can be with Him and be with God so that He can put our fear to rest so that we can go and serve. Serve in ways that we're terrified to serve. 
This is our close with this illustration. When Shelby was two, two and a half, we were at, actually at the same lake house, and um, she fell in the water, not paying attention, completely terrified. For the next six months, she wouldn't get her in water. Um, she she fell off the end of the dock. I mean, we had to jump in and get her. It was just wasn't long, but it was long enough for a two and a half year old girl to be completely terrified of getting in the water ever again. All bodies of water were just completely fearful for. Her. Six months later, I realized, like, all right, we got to get Shelby in the lake. Like, this, is, this is unacceptable. She has to be a swimmer, right? How does she, how does her fear die? Is it by her willing within herself, I'm not going to be afraid of this anymore? No. The way her fear died was I stood in the pool in front of her, and I said, I love you, and I will take care of you, and you will be safe. I was her father. And I demonstrated and preached my love and my care and my strength for her. And you know what that did? That killed her fear. And she jumped in the water. And she's a swimmer now. You see, it's actually someone else's love for you that kills your fear. It's Jesus cleansing us, dying for us, serving us, that kills our fear. That's what we need. Let's pray.